You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. As we continue on um, our study uh, in the book of Acts, um, uh, Empowered for Mission, we've been using uh, the image of a photo booth or a photo book to uh, illustrate what the book that we have in our hands is all about, the book of Acts. Um, is a narrative. It's not a copycat instruction manual for how to do church and pop out 16 strategic ways to grow your church or whatever. It's, it's, it's really more um, about introducing us to a person than a process. It's not for us to read things like Paul and Peter and be like, how come I don't see miracles like this? Or how come I don't you know, preach like this? Or how come this doesn't happen or whatever? It, it's, it's introducing us not necessarily to the apostles, the people that are living out the gospel in that particular context. It's more introducing us to the person of Jesus. Um, that the acts part of the book is not actually the actions of the apostles, but the actions of Jesus. And so therefore, just as, um, as the implicit uh, line that opens up this book, Dear Theophilus, that you would uh, read about the things that Jesus began to do, that that began to do clause would be really important because what's the use in starting something that isn't going to get finished? And so that's what I think is the imperative and the um, culpability on our hands today as we read these pages is that we're the sequel, different actors in the, in, the same, in the same story, but the same story nonetheless, same narrative, same, same person of Jesus in the spirit, the same purpose, the same mission to go out to all the ends of the earth, the same power that, that works in us, in us and through us. That's what this book is, is reminding us of in the photo, bo- uh, photo book um, of our church family. I'm going to start off um, with uh, kind of some um, heavy uh, spiritual warfare uh, battle stories today that um, I was hearing from, uh, from Billy Graham. He was, he was preaching a sermon one time and um, he talked about this um, older uh, California school teacher. She's about 66, and um, she was um, abducted. She was uh, brutally murdered. She, she had um, about six children, and there are five people that came um, and kidnapped her and, and um, took her off, and, and, uh, and she was just stabbed violently and brutally many times. And, and, uh, and when the police um, arrested these five suspects, they openly and blatantly said that... Um, they were making a sacrifice uh, in the name of, of the devil. That They were witches, uh, warlocks, these little male witches, and that they were doing their acts as kind of a spiritual duty. Um, another story, similar, a 22-year-old uh, woman from Montana was doing um, some hitchhiking. Uh, I can't remember if she's the driver or the other one, but um, ended up um, also, um, also being you know, brutally killed, and, and for the same reason when the, when the investigators asked the news reporters that they were doing so in, um, in the name of serving, serving the devil. And so um, I don't know what your experience or thoughts are on the idea of um, spiritual warfare. Um, you know, Brazil, uh, or, uh, um, Joel mentioned earlier, you know, the topic of spiritual warfare. Maybe we think of spiritual warfare as some other country, some other place uh, that that happens that doesn't happen here in America or some other time, you know, a time when we were a little bit more um, less scientific or whatever and we were seeing things from a less um, enlightened uh, perspective. Um, but uh, I do know and maybe you know, or maybe you are someone who has experienced, um, you know, the veil maybe pulled back and seeing some of the unseen things. Maybe here or maybe on mission trips you've seen that all that we see, the material world, is not all that there is, and that behind there, um, there are principalities and forces and evil and, and, and things that, that go on in terms of manifestations. Uh, um, we had a, um, uh, a friend that um, actually went through um, one of these episodes where uh, they were talking about at nighttime, they would see colored little eyes in their room. And in America, like in South Carolina, not in other countries, and they would wake up and be terrified by these kind of like 
haunting um, uh, demon kind of presence in, in their room. Or we had another girl who um, uh, her, her parent, we were friends with her, and her parent mom uh, practiced witchcraft, and she actually blacked out for this one period of time that during the separation and the divorce that the mom abducted her back to her house, and she was locked into this house for several days, and she can't even remember it as a child because of some of the spiritual oppression and, and, and stuff that was, that was going on. One particular story uh, sticks out um, in me and Kyra's experience in, in youth group. There was a young man who was kind of just like, a, I wouldn't use the word manifest or anything like that, but was, was exuding kind of dark behavior. And um, we, uh, we were uh, in the middle of, um, of prayer, and um, he had confessed earlier to some suicidal thoughts and, and had this cloak of kind of heaviness on him. And, um, and so some of our volunteers, uh, two ladies, one including Kyra and um, another gentleman, uh, three people all in all came over to pray for him. Um, and uh, he described afterwards, after that prayer session, as a heaviness that was exchanged for calm and peace um, uh, through that prayer. And actually, um, his, his mom actually had practiced in the occult and had gotten involved in some of that stuff in his earlier years uh, when she was pregnant and when, and when she had him. And, and, and the way that this young man um, talked about his testimony and experience in that prayer time was actually it wasn't two ladies and one man that was praying for him. It was Jesus, that he actually felt the hands and feet of Jesus. And um, one of the volunteers was led to not say, you are loved, but I love you. And when he heard those words, he actually heard the words of Jesus speak that over him. Um, and, uh, and it was cool. Even one of the volunteers that was praying for him heard, you know, sensed in their spirit, not an audible voice, that, um, that the Lord was saying, this one comes out by love. Almost like this one comes out by prayer and fasting, like that scripture, but this one comes out by love. So um, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that's really helpful, I found, um, in navigating some of the murky water, sometimes of spiritual warfare. Uh, but he says this in the Screw Tape Letters, a book that really focuses on that topic. There are two uh, equal and opposite errors, says Lewis, into which um, our race, humans, can fall about the devils. Two errors that we can conceive about spiritual warfare. One is to disbelieve its existence, to kind of carry on, and everything's just emotional health, and everything's just diet, exercise, and vitamin D, and just everything's practical, everything's physical. The other error would be the exact opposite plane, if you can imagine. The other is to believe and feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in spiritual warfare. Like sometimes you just didn't get a good parking spot. That's not the devil attacking you and trying to come back at you. It's like, that's life, man. You know, you need to over-spiritualize everything, right? So you can see these two gutters of everything. Everything is supernatural and nothing is supernatural. And both of these dichotomies are really false and dangerous, is what C.S. Lewis says. And so they themselves are the devils, the demons rather, are equally pleased by both errors, one that hails on the materialist side, all, that there, all we see is all there is, or one that's, that errs on the magician side. Everything's about uh, supernatural wonders and so forth, and so, and so these two gutters are a problem. So in other words, a way of saying this is that um, uh, the two different errors of, of seeing and thinking about spiritual warfare is to think about it too much and to think about it too little. That sometimes... Um, when uh, I was in youth group, there would be kids and they would come early to the prayer room and they'd have their headphones on and they'd be blasting on the intercession going forward and you know, fighting these spiritual batters and spiritual, spiritual warfare and all this kind of thing. And I would just think, I wonder if you just need some social skills. Like, I wonder if we could sit you down and help you talk to some girls and just not, you know, get some different on. Like, you know, like some of this is not a spiritual attack. The other error is like your kid, you know, has a, heavy mood and is going through a lot of 
hard and dark things, and you're taking them to counselors, and not, we're all about, we do the medication and the counseling. I'm not against any of that stuff, but I'm just saying not having a category for a spiritual attack puts your kid at, at risk if you don't understand that it's there. So whether you like it or know it or want it, it's, it's a reality, and it's biblical. And I think Scripture agrees with C.S. Lewis when it says this, verse 10, Ephesians 5, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, because it's not about our singing and demanding and shaking and banging pots and pans and sending money off in an envelope, right? It's his power that's established at Calvary that is unequivocal, it's unbeatable. And verse 11, put on the full armor of God in light of that so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's real, is the point. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So if I could summarize both Paul, Graham, um, uh, Billy Graham, and C.S. Lewis, I think that the, the statement comes to mind up on the screen is we can't fight spiritual battles only with physical weapons. If the battle is not flesh and blood, then there's a category for the battle, and then there has to be a category there for the weapon. For the weapon. All of these people, Paul, Graham, and Lewis, are all saying that Satan is real. Satan is found in the Bible at Genesis 3, and he doesn't go away until Revelation. He's all the way throughout, sometimes overt, sometimes covert. But he's called Satan, the devil, fallen angel, roaring lion, prince of demons, wolf, prowler, Beelzebub, dragon, serpent, Lucifer, great light, star, betrayer, adversary, wonder worker, liar, father of lies, god of this world, prince of this world, prince of the power of the air, kingdom of darkness, unrighteousness, hatred, sin, death, hell, and the grave. There's a lot of, there's a lot of occurrences and language that is expressed that he is not a myth. He is a, he is a toothless lion, but he's a lion nonetheless, and he roams around, and he works in a kingdom. He produces false miracles, false spiritual experiences, false tongues, false churches, false gospels, false plans of salvation, false trinities, false preachers, and false prophets. Because his only weapon in his toothless arsenal is lying. So to ignore that that is true or um, to worship that heavy, uh, dark reality, both of those two things would be error. The three things that, that I think these Authors would want us to know, one, that Satan is real. Two, Jesus is one, Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. This is our Jesus. This is what Jesus did on the cross, not to just save sons, sinners, and save them into sons, but to conquer evil and death in the grave. And it says in verse 2.15, um, the victory statement of Jesus, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, on the cross, triumphing over them on, 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 on the cross, by the cross. And so therefore, um, you know, if Satan is real and Jesus is one, then everything is, is spiritual. Everything that we see in this realm is both material and spiritual, and therefore we are part of a spiritual battle with spiritual warfare. Um, and so this is the statement that, that I'll work on as we move through Acts chapter 19. But if we fail to understand that our battle is spiritual, we will only fight wrong battles with the wrong weapons for all the wrong reasons. This is what's at stake. So if you're just joining us, we're going through Acts uh, one chapter at a time, and we are uh, today arriving uh, on a mission trip from Paul in the church of Ephesus, church of Ephesus. So the first eight chapters is all about the temple, and it is meant to illustrate that the gospel is portable. The first healing that ever happens in the book of Acts is the healing of the feet to signify to its readers that the church doesn't belong in brick and mortar, it doesn't belong in dentist's office like this, it belongs in you and me, and everywhere we go, we are the church. That's what that's meaning. That's the first step. And the second step from 9 through uh, 12, the little circles will be up there on the screen, um, the Judea to the ends of the Judea section and Samaria section, 
where ministry is being done to the uh, half-Jewish uh, portion of, of, of the mission, we learn um, that the gospel is also um, transitional, meaning the gospel is, 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 is the same always, but culture changes. And so that church, just like this church, is tested as Gentiles come in, as outsiders come in, to test you. Are you here because of culture or are you here because of Christ? Are you here because of circumcision or diet or anthematic songs or this preacher or this writer or this denomination or this system? Or are you here because of Jesus? And every change and transition tests the church on that very point. And so that's what that halfway section is all about. And this third section is all about the mission, the mission. And it says that the, that the gospel needs to be missional, that it didn't just wait for people to come and see that it also goes and tells. And so Paul goes on these various mission trips, and each of these mission trips has a different lesson. And so uh, just to find our context as we drop into the passage today, but the first mission trip, if you guys remember, was, um, that, that, that we looked at was in Athens. And so Athens is almost like the Ivy Leagues of today. It's the Harvard and the, and the Yale and the Silicon Valley and the Smarty Pants. And there's not a lot of miracles that go on in Athens. There's just a lot of reason. And it's saying that if you want people to see the truth of God, you can't just Bible beat them. You got to reason and meet them on their cultural context and help them understand how God is already working in there before you ever got there. And so the truth of God is with reason. The second mission trip that we saw um, was uh, last week was in Corinth, and it was the Vegas of the Bible. And it is full of lust, which is cool because the end of Corinthians 13 is all about love. And so what is the opposite of lust but love? And so he's a tent maker there. Do you see that? Like he works and does the second job. And he's like, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm here because I love you. I'm not here because I want your money or your stuff or your power, your accolades. I'm here because of love. And lastly, this is, this is a very spiritual place. I call this the New Orleans. Ephesus is like the New Orleans. I was at New Orleans one time for a wedding. And there's different parts of, of, of that city where you could like be in commercial district. And then you go two blocks down and it gets a little crazy in New Orleans. Like there's, you know, cults and crafts and sexual stuff and all this stuff that goes on in New Orleans. So there's a really deep pervading spiritual mindset that goes on in Ephesus, which is, which is really where we're seeing that in, in all these ways to be a witness. It's, it's all of these things. Like if you want to witness to your neighbor, to your friend, to your family, to your spouse, then you have to meet them with the love of God where they are. You have to care. You have to feed them. You have to clothe them. But also, if you want to meet them where they are, you have to speak the truth. You have to reason with them and speak with them and talk to them on their grounds and not argue against them, right? But win them in, in the truth of God and, and give a reason for the hope that you have. And then lastly, this last one, that sometimes it's good to just set the bread aside and set the talking aside and just pray for people. Just pray for, their, pray for their healing, pray for their salvation, pray for their deliverance. And that's what I think is really the moral of the story that we find in this, in this uh, little section of Acts 19. So it goes like this. Acts 19, verse 1, while Apollos was in Vegas, a.k.a. Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrives at Ephesus. The New Orleans is what I'm suggesting. And there he found some disciples. Let's hang on to that word. And asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So the next couple of verses are going to create this kind of puzzling anomaly because the first word that identifies the people they find in Ephesus is disciples, followers of Jesus. But they're not necessarily ordinary disciples, and so we're trying to figure out like exactly who it is that we're speaking to. So for, for two, verse 2, it says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So here's the answer, kind of strange. They answer, no, we never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's interesting. You have a believer who has never heard the Holy Spirit, and Paul, having spent five minutes with the group, can sense that they don't have any experience with the Holy Spirit. And so they continue on verse 3. Well, what baptism did you receive? And they say, well, John's baptism. John's baptism. Verse 4, Paul says, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told people to believe in the one coming after him in Jesus. 
little sidebar here, but you know, like, it doesn't take the Holy Spirit for a person or a Christian to judge sin and judge the world. Like, the ability to be critical and know what sin is and hate sin and repent from sin and want out of sin does not necessarily mean that as you repent, you also believe in the Holy Spirit. And so there's two things, really, that Jesus says in the kingdom of heaven speech. He says, you want to repent, which just means to turn, but it also means to believe. Like, it doesn't take a Christian to to see the problems in the church and see the problems in our country and see the problems in the injustices. Like, it doesn't take a Christian to hate sin, but it does take the Spirit to love Jesus. And so you have these people that, this is, this is what I make the argument. I believe these guys are believers. There's different doctrines and, and, and interpretations of this text. I believe if, you, if you're in the room and you've ever seen, been in the operating room when, when, when a baby is delivered, in a delivery room, I should say, when, when a baby is delivered, there's such a thing as half-born, that half the baby is out, right? And the other half is not quite out yet. And I feel that there's a couple of little segments in here, in, this, in Acts chapter 19 and other chapters, where we see somebody half-born. And I think there's a reason for that. I'm gonna come back to it. Okay, so they've repented, but they've not yet believed. They're halfway delivered. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is water baptism. And while Paul places hands on them, at the same time, not in two steps, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they speak in tongues and they prophesied, which... I think that's a lot of religious language. I think that tongues is vertical speaking to God, sometimes in groans and utterances and in language that he only understands and sometimes we don't understand. And I think that prophecy is horizontal language. It's talking with people um, like Holy Spirit would talk. And so I don't think it needs to be these like, really fancy categories. I think it just means that babies oftentimes talk before they walk. And these people just became fully alive in the Holy Spirit, not just water baptized, but Holy Spirit baptized. And so now they're talking vertically and they're talking horizontally. That's what this means. And there are about 12 men in all. And so obviously lots of different interpretations about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and whether or not somebody should or could be water baptized after the, and then afterwards Holy Spirit baptized. I'll leave that for you to discuss, you know, in the car ride home. Okay. But I tend to think that this is an exception. There's only three instances in which people in the Bible were ever water baptized and then secondarily a Holy Spirit baptizes two separate occasions, and that's one in chapter 8 with the Samaritans, right between the first phase and the second phase of Acts. Two, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, the first Gentile that was accepted into the family, and then Acts chapter 19. And so these, these are anomaly scenarios of half-born Christians, of people that are able to be water baptized, waiting on the Holy Spirit to be baptized. And this is the only conceivable understanding of why I think that Luke would include these details as exceptions, not norms. Because I think that this book is long, and I think also that life is long. And every now and again, somebody needs to come along and tell you as a believer, have you forgotten about the Holy Spirit? Have you forgotten that none of this works without? The very beginning of this whole book, remember, chapter one is so important because it's the only portrait of the church of believers believing in Jesus, not filled with the Spirit. Because they always want you to know, just like those diet pictures that you took before January of the before and after picture, before the Holy Spirit, there was no church. Before the Holy Spirit, there was no salvation. And so every now and again, because the book is long and because life is long, I think that God has planted anomalies in this to show half-born people, to show the sequence of how things are made to, so that you and I always remember as life gets long and hard and cumbersome, don't forget the Holy Spirit. There's no worship without the Holy Spirit. 
It's just words. It's just singing. You're going to be looking at other people jealous or confused or bored that we're singing some song because you can't worship without the Holy Spirit. There's no change. There's no transformation. You're going to be white-knuckling and trying this habit and doing that habit and reading this book and doing that because there's no transformation without the Holy Spirit. You going to your neighbor and telling them about the Bible and Jesus and why they ought to go to church with no love in your heart and no compassion or conviction just because you, somebody told you you need to do it because witnessing is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So I think that this passage is asking us an important question. Is like, these guys, these disciples, they can't even explain. Who, they don't even, couldn't spell the Holy Spirit. Maybe most of us have some recollection of who the Holy Spirit and what he does. The question is not, though, can you explain the Holy Spirit? Is do you experience the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day basis? If Paul was spending time with you in five minutes or less, would he be able to see the evidence and the experience of the Holy Spirit in your life? the after photo of a believer, empty and then filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't share any of that you know, as a guilt trip or, or, or to you or to me. There's, there's people all over the map. I'm sure some of you guys in your personal just prayer closet by yourself, you would put the word never on that. I have never encountered the presence of the Holy Spirit. I've never experienced or witnessed the Holy Spirit do something in a moment that was impossible before he got there. I've never seen that before. And that's a hard place to be. Some of us, maybe better or worse, are in a place where that's rare. Like a few times in middle school, I can think back on a time when I saw the Holy Spirit do something impossible he could, that, he couldn't, you know, that wouldn't have happened a minute before he got there. And some of us are more often. All of the categories in this room, all of us I know are in the same place, though, is because the Spirit wants in our talking and our walking for that word to be always. That there's always a hunger and a filling, a constant filling and continual filling of the Holy Spirit because to worship and to walk and to witness is impossible without him. So here's the good news. This is not the burden, guilt talk. This is the opportunity, invitation talk, is that his, you know what? His primary lesson plan as a teacher in your life to get you filled with the Holy Spirit is to bring you to emptiness first. There's no believer that gets filled with the Holy Spirit because he's a, he doesn't impose himself. He invites you. And so that's actually part of the plan. Your dryness, your frustration, your holy dissatisfaction with yourself, with your neighbor, with your community, you know what that is? It's an invitation to know the Holy Spirit. I'm glad you're at the spot now to know what you can't do on your own so that we've got the before picture settled. Now watch me fill you with the Holy Spirit. And so that's just the question. It's just the difference between a coming to the end of that place and leading, from, leading to either frustration or just repentance, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I think these are exceptions not, ex- exceptions, not norms. I don't think there's need to create entire doctrines around, you know, needing to have people water baptized and then step two, spirit baptized. I think these are, these are anomalies that are placed strategically at the transitional points of the book of Acts to show us a half-born Christian and the sadness of what it might look like to not be able to explain or maybe be able to explain and not experience because what's the difference? Life without the Holy Spirit because life and mission is impossible without him. So that's important, right? Because he wants to talk about the Holy Spirit because the battle's spiritual. And that's why these two stories, one of Apollos and now this one of these Ephesians disciples, they, they, you get, the, you get the, the authority of how this battle is fought set in the first segments of this story so we can understand who is doing the work as we go. So now it's a little bit more covert, but it's, the, the Spirit is still active. Look at this. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly. Let me tell you what humans are never doing without the Holy Spirit. They're never bold. They're divided and distracted, and tired, and selfish, but they're not bold. So that's a Holy Spirit word, not a Paul word. They were three months arguing persuasively. Another thing, wisdom. You know what humans are without the Holy Spirit? Stupid. They're stupid. You're stupid. You're all stupid, right? So he's got wisdom, and he's persuasively arguing about the kingdom of God, 
But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So here's an important, you know, axiom to understand. Like, I, I remember being in a more charismatic church, and there was a line that we'd say, when, when the true presence of God is present, life change is inevitable. You know how I know that's not true? Verse 8. There's a bunch of people in the middle of the Holy Spirit with their arms folded like this, and nothing you or me can do about it. Which talks to us as people that are Christians as we minister to people. It also talks to us as people that need the Holy Spirit. If we have our arms crossed, he's not going to impose on you. He's waiting for you to invite him. Are you hungry enough to ask him to fill you? So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with him, and he goes to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I think there's 25,000 people. Anybody that says that God hates megachurches is wrong because of Tyrannus. God is not afraid. He's afraid of arrogant churches. Those can be small or big. It does not have to do with size. And if we, if we need to feel a political town hall control over small church and then blame megachurch for that, we're not, we're, gonna, we're not going to get rid of our problems by getting rid of the size of churches. It is humble churches that are uplifted and proud churches that are pushed down, and that's the end of it, two or 2,000, right? So this went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who live in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Verse 11 says that God did extraordinary miracles, and I'm taking that Greek extraordinary means extraordinary, like not normal. Okay, so this isn't the normal thing, but God is not living in a box, as we know. So verse 12 says, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. I don't think this means that you should call that 1-800 number and send out the money for the, you know, sand from Jerusalem or whatever for your healing, okay? But I do believe that God is a God of power, and he is meeting the Athenians with reason, and he's meeting the Corinthians with love, and I think he's meeting this Ephesian um, church, or this pre-Ephesian church with the power that is meeting them on their terms. So verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits were trying to invoke or use the name of Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. This is just Christianity 101. If you're a new Christian, I want to tell you something. Just because someone says they're a Christian does not mean they are. If they are on Tinder and they say, hey, I'm a Christian, single, waiting to mingle, they might not be Christian. I'm just saying. Like, they're going to be stamping that thing on there. They'll stamp it on their bumper sticker. They'll stamp it on their church. Like, your discernment tactic can't be as simple as did they say they're a Christian. Because all those people want to invoke or use the name of the Lord. By the way, that third commandment, remember Deuteronomy, it says don't use the Lord in vain. That's not Christmas story saying JC under the hood of a muffler cursing under your breath. It is that, but it's just using the name of Jesus anytime without the nature of Jesus. Like in front of the Gentiles ruining his reputation because you are naming something something and not walking in the nature of it, that's blasphemy. That's the category of what he means by that. And so there's these people that, tons of people, want to sell the name of Jesus, use the name of Jesus. That's what's going on. So um, they're using it to cast out demons. And they'd say, well, you know, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I commanded you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, was doing this. And one day the evil spirit comes out and just spiritually suplexes them. Okay, just spanks them real bad. Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are you? I don't even know who you are. I never heard of you before. Because you put the bumper sticker on it, but you don't know him. And he doesn't know you. In verse 16, then the man had the evil spirit jump on them and overpowered them. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This just got cage fought just there by a demon. Not a good day, okay? So I think the con con contrast here is that in the church of Ephesus, you have ignorance. 
Okay, and over here, the sons of Sceva, you have arrogance. Okay, to not know the authority and walk in power, that's just ignorance. Over here, when you try and grab for his power without walking under his authority, that's arrogance. And that's going to lead to a beating. It's going to lead to a problem. Okay, so there's a lot of language out there, binding and loosing, and Christians have authority. And we do, we do have authority. I just clarify, though. Here's what we have authority to do. Okay, Christians have authority. They have the authority of Jesus we sang about today. They have the, we have the authority to do what Jesus says. That's what our authority is. When we walk out of that authority, there's no promises as to what happens outside of Jesus' authority. You remember what, what, what Peter says in 1 Peter 5? If you are arrogant, God's going to oppose you. His, his power follows his authority, and his authority follows his power. And if you get in the way of his authority, his power is coming for you. That's, I mean, because he loves you, he disciplines you. But, but that's the deal is like authority doesn't mean now because I've been baptized, I just go out everywhere and do whatever I want. And Jesus says, that's what I'm like. That's not how it works. Authority always comes with power. And so that leads me really to like probably the most important spiritual law of, of all spiritual warfare, practical, spiritual, unseen, seen. And that is... I'll call it like the law of gravity. It's the law of authority and power. If you grab for the power of Jesus without submitting to the authority of Jesus, that's not a good place to be because he, he, he has to oppose you. But if you, if you submit to the authority of Jesus, come under the order of Jesus, the power will grab for you. You get both. You lose both if you grab for power. You get both if you serve authority. So here's a quick illustration and then some examples. All right, so it's a preview for our little family meeting, but... Um, the houseless population in Greenville has been kind of moving around just because of, uh, of development. And so um, we do have a lot of people that will use um, our Swamp Rabbit building in the last couple of years, especially in the last two years, stay, stay dry, stay warm, light fires. So Thanksgiving 2021, your boy was out there on Thanksgiving just dealing with the fire marshal because there was a fire in the main part of the roof. Everybody's safe. This last Wednesday, same exact thing happens. And this is kind of preview is what, what our, our meeting is encouraging. It's not looming. It's not a bad thing. Just hang in there. And so uh, the little portion closest to Swamp Rabbit grocery store, 6,000 square feet, the roof uh, had burned up. Everybody was safe. And I rolled up there, and there's 50 firefighters, and they're like, enough's enough. The structure isn't sound anymore. We're coming over. We're knocking your building down uh, tomorrow. And I'm like, well, dang, that's how it, that happened quick. We're sitting here making all our plans for 10 years, doing all this stuff, and then like, they just knock it all down, and that's how it goes. And I'm like, all right. So I'm like making my peace with this for like 20 minutes. I'm like, that's it, the end of the show. Things get knocked down. I mean, we could still build on it, but you don't get the tax credits. That's a big deal. So Greg shows up, and uh, brother-in-law Kyle, and they come over, and Scott had said something to this on the phone, and they asked a very important question. They said, now, when the guy came to you and said they're going to knock it down, was he a structural engineer or was he not? And I was like, you know what, Greg? I'm not really sure. I'm just a pastor, and I just read books for a living, okay? But I don't think he was a structural engineer. I think he was just a dude from the county that was pretty ticked off. So, so Greg and Kyle go down there, and they have these nice, I mean, they love these guys. And me, he was not happy with them. They loved them. They were talking about Clemson and blah, blah, blah. So they're talking with a guy, and he's a guy, and Greg's, a, and he's just meeting him in the middle. He's like, you know what? What if I get a structural engineer, that was the code word that I needed, to come in and, and defend that the rest of this building is sound and just the part that burned is the part that gets knocked down? And they were like, he wasn't happy about it, but he was like kind of bound by the law, so to speak. And he was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to listen to that. And so because of what Greg said, basically Greg and Kyle saved the day for at least 60 days, and I'll get into that during the meeting. Okay, <laughs> what's the point of all that? What's the point of all that? 
is that power always follows authority, not vice versa. Those wrecking balls had the power to knock down that building. And if I was standing out there screaming, you know, the name of Jesus, those walls are still probably coming down. Unless it was a Jericho, that thing is coming down because the power is there. But it didn't have the authority. The law would say that we're, you know, a private, you know, ownership there of that land, nonprofit. And until a structural engineer says that it's not sound, you can't knock it down. You can't just go over somebody's house and knock down their house because you don't like it, even if it's ugly. Okay? Okay, what, is that, what does that matter? Is that the law of authority and power is, like, if we submit to God's authority, his power will uplift us. But if we don't submit to his authority, his power has to oppose us. It's, 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 it's literally that simple. And so here's the deal. Okay. So... The power and the authority of Jesus says that you have what Jesus has, nothing more than us. If, if Jesus gave you something or took something away from you, if he gave you his righteousness, took away your sin, then nothing the devil can do can give it back to you or take it away from you. If Jesus gives you something or takes something, it cannot be reversed. But he can lie to you to get you to give it away. The, the enemy, when he approaches us in spiritual warfare, is not going to read us our Miranda rights. He's not going to say to you, Sharon... Now, I'm going to come and try and intimidate you, but just remember, you have the blood of Jesus on your side, and I have no power or authority over you. <laughs> He's going to say, look at what you did. Look at your stupid attitude. Look at your stupid behavior. You think that Jesus is going to come and pick you. You see what he did there? Did that change anything about your baptism whenever you get baptized? It doesn't change your authority or your position, but it sure as heck changes your emotion and what you actually believe is true. What you know and don't know can kill you, can hurt you, can hurt you. So, for example, if you decide to walk in bitterness and unforgiveness... What you have done is you've sat in Jesus' seat. You've said that you believe you have authority to judge that person. And when you step out of that authority and, yield, and, and lean into something that Jesus was supposed to be doing, then you've stepped out of authority and there's all sorts of spiritual... I don't think that Christians can get possessed, but they can get oppressed and they certainly can get attacked. Truth of the matter is, he's actually always attacking us all the time. It's just whether or not we're underneath the authority or outside of that authority. But when we step into places of unforgiveness, don't be surprised when you get spiritually attacked. The idea of comparison. What does most of the Ten Commandments have to do with covetedness? The authority of Jesus is that if you knew the life you had in Jesus, you wouldn't want anybody else's life. But when you don't take him at his word like that, and you go outside of his authority, and you say, Jesus, I think there's a better life out for me. Don't be surprised when anxiety and craziness and all sorts of attack comes your way, because if you're not underneath the authority of Jesus, you're not under the provision of his power. It's not a good spot to be. And so this is, I think, what ultimately the sons of Sceva kind of get, get mixed up on. And I, I would kind of like land the plane with this simple thought in terms of the idea of authority and power, is that when we do what Jesus wants, this is what authority looks like, is when we do what Jesus wants, when he wants to do it, for the reasons he wants to do it, we're unstoppable for him. In other words, if, if we're out here singing songs and sending money and putting oil over doors and claiming this and doing that and buying this, like if we're doing a bunch of stuff underneath the power of Jesus underneath the name of Jesus, but we don't know the authority of Jesus. We don't know the truth of our sonship. We don't know the position that we stand in. If we're not walking in the authority side, we're up for a spiritual whooping is what I get out of this whole thing. And so I want to go through, this is how I want to kind of apply um, what Paul tells us in terms of the book of Ephesians that he wrote to this, to this church, right? After he's in prison, I take it that Paul's in prison, you know, I think in Rome, and he's, and he's, 
looking at a, a Roman guard, and he starts talking about spiritual warfare. You guys remember this in Ephesians chapter 6, and he starts talking about all these little articles, and he's prophetically trying to see into what, what could I do to explain to a church that has all authority and all power in Jesus and can't lose any of it unless they believe the lie that the devil told them. Like, how would I equip a church and arm them for spiritual warfare? And this is what he comes up with, and these are the six, um, actually there's five, but there needs to be six there on the screen. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 about spiritual warfare. He says that spiritual warfare is like wearing a belt of truth. That to live in the, in, in the, in the place of spiritual authority, like living underneath the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and the identity of sonship that you live in, is to live in honesty. That if, that if we create two different worlds of the way that people think that I am and the way that I actually am, we're always getting spiritually attacked, but hypocrisy opens us to all sorts of spiritual problems. That place of unconfession is a stronghold. That's what Peter says. There's footholds. Like, he can't get in the house, but he gets a foothold in the door, and he's barking at you and scaring you and robbing years and robbing joy. and robbing, Like, this is where it happens. Like, you have the peace, but the forfeit of it is when you don't wear the belt of truth and come underneath the authority of Jesus, you put yourself... In this place, in this space of hypocrisy, and there's spiritual attack there. And so he's saying, just wear the belt of truth every day. Just tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And you don't need to scream at the devil. That's spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare. Wear the breastplate of righteousness. Here's what I, I know about this. The Holy Spirit doesn't just make life fun. He makes it possible. Life is impossible with the Holy Spirit. So what I know about you and me is if we base our life on our track record of righteousness, I'm too hot and cold to walk out life and mission with Jesus without the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, when he's saying, wear the breastplate of righteousness, he's not saying like, you know, have a seance and like get some, you know, token piece of the breastplate of righteousness and wear it on Sunday school and that makes it all better, right? He's using a metaphor, not mysticism, to explain that when it is that you, you think about your record to yourself and to others, you are looking at yourself through the righteousness of Jesus and, and not the righteousness of yourself, through what he's done for you and not what you do. Because if, if, if your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is contingent on your mood based on hot and cold, you're not gonna do it. It's not gonna work. And so if you go and try to win the power struggle without coming under the authority of the truth side of things, you're bound to lose. And so the, the righteousness of Jesus, believing and knowing the truth of the righteousness of Jesus, the imputed righteousness of Jesus that he died the death that we couldn't have died to give us the life we couldn't have lived. If, you don't, if you're not living in that, then all of this is going to cause heartache and exhaustion. Third, I'll move quicker, the feet of peace. The feet of peace. The feet of peace is, is justification, Romans 5, that you have the peace of God. And so this, there's this unsuredness, like with my feet, like if I have an ankle injury, right, like I'm not really sure where I'm walking, and there's this picture that, that if I, Paul's probably saying in the prison, like if, if we don't have our boots on, if we don't know where our feet stand, there's this unsuredness. And when we question and, and, and maybe think back, like, like he didn't answer this prayer, so maybe, not God is, maybe, not, maybe God's not good. He's saying, you know where you need to look for your peace? The cross. You know, how, you know what the proof of your peace is? The cross. That's where the peace of God that transcends understanding. It doesn't come from, I had a great retreat. It comes from the Calvary is done. And that's where spiritual battle, that's spiritual battle. And you parent from that. That's where spiritual battle lives. The, sh the shield of faith. You know, sometimes like, especially in high faith communities, it's like, we are going to bring heaven by worshiping more. That's not true. 
You can't bring heaven by worshiping more. You know why? Because heaven's here by faith. So it doesn't matter how long the worship song is. It doesn't matter how good the preacher is. You know what matters? God loves faith. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in him. Do you believe he is who he says he is and did what he said he did? And you parenting and you doing your job and you praying for people and praying for the sick, you, your understanding that matters so much to how you pray and how you live. The helmet of salvation, you know, you know what the devil wants to do? He wants to accuse you to God and accuse God to you. He's an accuser. He's an accuser. And so the helmet of salvation puts on this protective mindset that makes everything in my, if my thought does not obey the fact that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, that's what he says about Oliver because of what Jesus did for me. There's not a helmet around my head. There's all sorts of thoughts that will compete for what goes on in there. This is what spiritual warfare is. The sword of the spirit. You know, when Jesus, he went into the desert, he didn't do, he didn't do whatever he wanted. You know what? Jesus had all authority and power. You know what he didn't do? He didn't jump. He didn't eat, and he didn't grab for kingdoms. He did what the Father said. That's how you have authority. And so Jesus goes in there. He didn't quote his feelings. He quote the scripture. And that's, maybe that's spiritual warfare is Bible reading. Bible reading is not something I do to make God happy. Bible reading is just smart. It's knowing how to handle high-risk situations before you get into them and letting that be the thought on your mind. It doesn't really matter what you know. What matters is what you're thinking about when the problem happens. And if the scripture is not continually meditated, it won't be there. It won't be there. So the sword, sword of the Spirit. And so ultimately, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, and, and, we'll, and we'll have worship in, in a moment. But there's three questions. I don't know if I ended up sending them. But I, I think it all comes down, uh, spiritual warfare comes down to three different questions. Uh, for, for days that you are very awake and aware to the spiritual cosmic world that's going on around us, or times that you're just totally apathetic and asleep to it. I think there's three important questions that we can ask when we think about how to engage in a spiritual war that's already been won by Jesus 2,000 years ago. And the first one is the identity question. That's why I think he talks about the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit before he sends them into Ephesus. It's because he wants to remind people. He wants to remind people. This is not about what you're doing. This is about who you are. And you have to ask yourself this first question because that tells you everything about where you land in the authority chain is are you a Christian? Am I a Christian? Am I a son or a daughter of God? If that is true, that matters a lot. If it's not true, then I pray that you consider making it true. Turning and trusting for his grace, for his salvation, for his power to change dead things into life. But aside from that, if you are a Christian, then the most, one of the most important things is if you're a Christian, that means that nothing he has given you and nothing he has taken away from you can be taken or given back by the devil. Everything that you have in Christ Jesus is sealed around you in the Holy Spirit, and it can't be taken. And so you thinking that you lost it and go and get it and prove it and vindicating yourself in front of public opinion and doing all that stuff, it's just going to get you spiritually whooped. But knowing who you are is like all the battle. Number two is the authority question. I would ask myself if I'm in a, in a time of intense spiritual warfare, is there anything in my mind that doesn't agree with Jesus? If there's anything that's not agreeing with Jesus, then it's not in submission to his authority. It doesn't question my salvation, but it does put me in a lot of danger. And it puts people around me in a lot of harm, and, and it causes me to hurt myself if my identity is not in line with Jesus, if my views on money or sex is not in line with, me, with Jesus, if my, uh, the way I treat my neighbor is not in agreement with Jesus, then I'm outside of his Psalm 91 wing. And that's not the shelter of the Lord. I'm not under his authority. I'm not under that. Uh, and then lastly, the last thing, 
is power, is if, if I know who I am and I know what he said about me, then if I'm doing what Jesus says for the reasons he says to do it, at the times he says to do it, then there's no power that can stand against me. There's an important clause in all this, right, is that all true authority will always answer in true power and all true power answers to true authority. There's an important clause. It's not always immediate. And so there's a test at stake is that, you know, there will be a test that there will be things around us that look like power and authority are headed the other direction. It's the now and the not yet. There's an asterisk mark that eventually and eternally, all knees, every power and every authority will bow to Jesus. Sometimes it's a day, but sometimes it's not. And so the test is, will I follow the authority of Jesus when the powers around me will swirl? When things don't always look like he's in control, will I trust him? And that's, I think, a glimpse, at least, of what you know, spiritual warfare um, would look like. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.